0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Good evening, everybody. I'm John Berman, and this is CNN Tonight. So, here's a question. Is Donald Trump finished? I'm not saying he is or should be, but I am saying it feels like that question is part of the national discussion in ways it has never been. Today, the House January 6th committee issued criminal referrals for the former president, four of them to be exact.
2: Anyone who incites others to engage in rebelling, assists them in doing so, or gives aid and comfort to those engaged in insurrection, is guilty of a federal crime.
1: So we thought about booking historians tonight to place these criminal referrals in an historical context. But what's the point? There is no context. This has never happened before. It is sui generis, which is just a snobby, annoying, and Latin way of saying unique. Now, we will discuss the actual legal teeth these referrals have, spoiler alert, none, but they might represent a marker for a moment when a lot of people figure Trump is just not worth the trouble anymore. On the other hand, when asking that question, remember, we are talking about a guy who was impeached not once, but twice. That was certainly sui generis. So was a candidate revealed to have bragged about sexually assaulting women. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. <laughs> Whatever you want. Grab him by the p <laughs> I I can do anything. <laughs> sui generis, or equivocated on marching anti-Semitic white nationalists or publicly picked Vladimir Putin over his own intelligence services or asked about injecting light or disinfectant to fight a pandemic.
3: And then I see the disinfectant
1: where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And
4: is there a way we can do something like that Uh, by injection
3: inside or or Almost a cleaning, because you see it gets in the lungs and it does a tremendous number in the lungs. So it'd be interesting to check that.
1: Sui generis, times three. And he survived those. Maybe for Trump, it should be called sui, here we go again. Also, if you're looking around the world right now, irreversible political death sentences seem scarce. Israel just elected an indicted, scandal-plagued former prime minister. Brazil picked a former president who was in prison a couple years ago. It's the political Monty Python corollary to prescriptions of demise.
5: Bring out your dead <laughs>
4: ninepence. I'm not dead. What? Nothing. Here's your ninepence. I'm not
5: dead. Here. He says he's not dead. Yes, he is. <laughs> I'm not. He isn't? Well, he will be soon. He's very ill.
1: So Trump wasn't dead yet, not those times. That is the other hand to questions being asked about Trump. But back to the first hand and the situation tonight and about the notion beginning to float that Donald Trump really is politically finished this time. And it's not just the criminal referrals about which we will soon discuss the legal teeth. Spoiler alert, none. But it's also the midterm election defeats, the Mar-a-Lago dinner with an anti-Semite and a white nationalist, the idea of terminating parts of the Constitution, that all this adds up to someone even Republican supporters don't want to deal with anymore, especially in a world where Ron DeSantis exists, that maybe tonight Donald Trump is less like the guy on the cart in the Holy Grail and more like Bruce Willis in The Sixth Sense, politically dead, but no one told him. Sorry, I missed the spoiler alert there. So so that's the question hanging over everything we will discuss tonight about what happened today. So let's dive right in. Joining me now, CNN political analyst Maggie Haberman, senior political correspondent for The New York Times, CNN political commentator S.E. Cup, and CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Hoding. Maggie please, Haberman. Please,
6: just, this, that was an awesome, <laughs> awesome intro. If
1: it was good, it's sui generis, which is to say the first time. <laughs> well, it I, had I, I Berman good.
6: written all over it. Okay, I mean, I loved it. I loved it. Let me, let me do another dramatic reading, this
1: time from Maggie Haberman, who wrote on Twitter about an analysis that you just posted in The New York Times about Donald Trump. And the referrals today, the largely symbolic but unprecedented criminal referrals by the House committee of a former president underscore the reality that Trump is facing, a diminished figure politically.
7: I think that's right. I think it's diminished, but I would not go so far as to say that Donald Trump is dead. I mean, it's not just all of those moments, and I really did enjoy the montage, thank you. <laughs> um, but it's not just all of those moments that you just played. This is a guy who has been written off for decades. Mm-hmm. You know, he was he was uh, his casinos were bankrupted, but he was fine. Um, he was you know dismissed in the 1990s. He was dismissed as an entertainer. He came back over and over and over again, and so I don't think you can say that he's done. Especially because we don't know whether Ron DeSantis is running. We don't know whether he will be any good as a candidate. I think this all comes down to two questions. Does anyone actually indict Donald Trump? Which we still, you know, nothing has changed today from yesterday, realistically, to your point. There's no legal teeth there. And then what do voters do? When and if there are actual other choices? Everything else is just filling in one side of the page.
1: But, you know, uh, the, one of the points I was making is it's not just the indictments, even before the indictments, the referrals. No, even before the referrals, there was all this other stuff. There are these polls yes. and there is a sense even before you wrote it just a few hours ago, politically diminished. <laughs> I that stamp, is, and I stand by that. It <laughs> is, yes. in fact, right. politically diminished within Trump world. Right. How are they reacting to this reality, or how do they
7: perceive
1: that reality?
7: So there's a difference between what they will say and what they actually think. And there's a difference between what they actually think and what they will say to him. He is continuing to say everything is fine to any number of people, which we have seen him do over and over and over through every single crisis. That's how he handles things. There are some advisors around him who acknowledge this is not an ideal fact set. Uh, You know, I use the word diminished very specifically because he is shrunken, basically. And this is different now than, say, in 2016. And this is a point someone made to me in the analysis I posted tonight. In 2016, voters, they were familiar with, you know, the idea of Trump that they had heard about for decades. They were not familiar with who he is, what he's like, the fact that there is a, a rolling drama around him at all times, and I think there is a sense of fatigue. What that adds up to depends on who he's running against and what else is happening. But I absolutely think that he is a smaller and, and certainly less powerful figure than he was before.
6: Look, um, you can't underestimate just how loyal a lot of his fans, yes. but also his surrogates um, and supporters are. You know, I just heard Steve Bannon say he's out over the NFTs. He was fine with the sedition and the bigotry. Um, the NFTs was like the bridge too far. I'm sure he'll come, come back around um, if Trump starts looking like the only candidate uh, or the strongest candidate. You had Mike Pence just yesterday or today saying, well, gosh, I hope he isn't indicted. That would just be a shame. The guy's supporters tried to kill you in the Capitol. Donald Trump did nothing to stop it. And you don't think he should face any consequences. So there's, I think, a lot of people talking a little tough about Donald Trump, who, when push comes to shove, if DeSantis doesn't get in, or DeSantis gets in and looks soft among voters, will absolutely find ways to continue defending Donald Trump.
8: And let me say, one thing that I know about Donald Trump, and I know because I read Maggie's book, nothing energizes him like a fight, right? He has come back, as Maggie said, from the dead so many times. And guess what? This here, this referral... This is going to be a fight because you know what's going to happen on Wednesday when all the underlying materials come out. Donald Trump's lawyers, perhaps some of his most loyal followers, are going to go through that with a fine tooth comb and they're going to go, aha, look here, here's testimony given that was favorable to him maybe by Stephen Miller, right? A lot Mm -hmm. of people who were Mm -hmm. Trump sympathizers went in and testified, and they'll say, the committee hid this from you. They're going to go through and say, oh, look, Cassidy Hutchinson testified, and here's a way she said it slightly differently, maybe when she had her prior lawyer. Therefore, her testimony is not to be believed. I think she was quite credible, but watch. I've seen it happen with witnesses.
1: This could energize Donald Trump. Let me ask you it this way, Ellie. On the legal side of it, what's different for Donald Trump tonight? Yeah than when he woke up this morning. So two things. First of all, there's
8: now a book, a Bible, right? This this document, 160 pages, an executive summary, where all in one fairly concise place, they should have made it about one quarter the length, but in one place you can look and say, here is sort of the story of what Donald Trump did. The other thing is, if I can cheat a little, in two days will be different when we get all the documents. DOJ is now going to have all the evidence. DOJ, for better and for worse, they're going to have facts that they don't know. We know DOJ has been asking the committee for this stuff. That's and you're going to have other stuff that may be used to sort of impeach some of what the committee did.
7: I agree with you in terms of, <clears throat> of the impeaching what the committee did. I think you are going to see Republicans making a huge push on that. I'm not sure it's going to be as effective as it might be, say, if Kevin McCarthy was not drowning in his own leadership fight. So right. I think there's a bunch of a bunch of X factors there. The one thing I will say, you, you, you made a point, and I should have mentioned this before. You were saying nothing energizes Donald Trump like a fight. That's absolutely true. And he never sounds as sort of, you know, engaged as he does in recent days when he's talking about wanting to take on Ron DeSantis. But that's the only time he really sounds engaged. And in 2015, he was enjoying himself. There were a lot of people who were not enjoying his candidacy, Mm -hmm. to be clear. But, you know, his slash-and-burn stuff was so much fun for him. Is there anything that gives anyone any sense that he's enjoying any of this right now? We (laughs) haven't seen
6: him in five weeks. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And I think that might be a calculation of Ron DeSantis's waiting. Waiting yeah. this out, not giving him exactly what he needs right away so that for the next two two years totally. um it's the Trump show all over again and he knows Ron DeSantis knows that the media will follow, will start paying attention if there's a fight between Trump and a DeSantis or Trump and someone else. So maybe he's hanging back for that reason. Can
1: I bring Paris Hilton into the all this? Always. So: so didn't I she, was wondering when you were going to get there. Didn't she, didn't she once say, and I'm paraphrasing Paris Hilton for the first and only time, basically there's nothing worse than being boring, right? The, the worst crime okay. in the world is being boring or something like that. And for Trump, at a certain point... yeah. All of this just becomes background noise, and that if you are a Republican who may believe in much or most or all of the stuff he believes in, he's just exhausting, and it's just not worth it anymore.
7: There was something that, and I wrote about this in a book that I wrote, uh, that Bill Barr, the former attorney general, said to Trump in the spring of 2020 when he was trying to coach him on being a more normal candidate, and he said that people are tired of the expletive drama, and... Mm -hmm. I think there is something to that. I think even his supporters are tired of the drama. That doesn't mean they won't be with him again. I think that they probably will, as long as he has this on roughly 30% of the Republican Party, he's in pretty good shape. And, you know, even the polling that shows that he is... There is some erosion. He is definitely decelerating, but he still has that core group, and you can't write him
6: off. And the GOP hasn't made outreach to other kinds of voters. They've decided against the big tent, went all in for Trump, and have condensed Mm -hmm. the base over the past six years so that it is the most sort of purely Trump Um, kind of voter. And so they might have a lot of Trump support, but it's um, probably not enough to win another uh, national election.
8: Two things real quick. Of course, Maggie got that scoop. I wrote a book about Bill Barr. I didn't get anywhere near that scoop. (laughs) But second of all, this stuff is scary. Right? This is a little different than just bad tweets or mm-hmm. stupid NFTs. Yes. I mean, okay. you're talking about potential indictments, so there's real consequences.
7: Yeah, except that what he said in this, just to make clear, what he said in the spring of 2020 was after the impeachment involving right, Ukraine. Right. So it wasn't as if we, it was this light and fluffy <laughs> presidency where nothing else well, happened.
1: Also, I want to apologize because apparently not for the last time I confused Paris Hilton and Bill Barr. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, <laughs> it happens. Maggie, Essie <laughs> and, and Ellie are going to stick around. We're going to lose you. So I just want to ask you before we do lose you, If there was anything revealed today, whether in these hearings or the summary or the papers that have been released insofar as you've been able to go through them, was there anything new you think that would be or might be of particular concern or that adds to the problems Donald Trump is facing.
7: I don't know if it adds to the problems he's facing. It certainly adds to layers that I think that the committee wants the DOJ to look at. So one thing is that they raised this specter of, uh, you know, uh, interfering with witnesses. And they were very vague in how they described it. They didn't attach names to it. Um, They they wrote it in a very particular, and I would say, to some extent, peculiar way, given the the weight of that potential claim, Um, or that claim and that potential charge. So that's one thing. Um, I think that this has gotten very little attention I've been a little surprised by it. They sort of went out of their way to tweak Ivanka Trump and say that she was not direct with them in her testimony. We got to see that in the videos that they showed. We know what they think, but they wanted to lay that out, that they don't think that she was somebody who was being forthcoming.
1: And just before we end this segment, Ivanka Trump, Kaylee McEnany, and Tony Ornato, they all sort of, Ellie, made these veiled references to not being as forthcoming as they would like.
8: Yeah. Uh,
1: political, legal, where's the line there? Well, they're making credibility
8: findings, which ordinarily we leave to judges or juries. If you can show you've got the person dead to rights. She said X, we Mm -hmm. know that she knew it was not X. Then you're talking perjury. It doesn't sound like they're anywhere near Mm -hmm. there. It sounds more like we didn't really just believe them on the whole.
7: That's right. And and that's sort of my my point with the potential... For witness, it's I wouldn't say tampering, but at least sort of influencing. Um, that's a really serious claim, and and they made it with not a ton of specifics behind it, and, and without a criminal referral to too, though. And without a criminal referral, that's correct. All right,
1: Maggie, thank you. Thank you very much, um, Essie and Ellie. Stick around. With pleasure. Much more for you <laughs> coming up. So, in a first, the January sixth committee recommended four criminal charges against a former president. What can the Department of Justice do? that they couldn't? What can DOJ do that the committee didn't do? I'm going to ask a member of that committee. Stay with us for Congressman Adam Schiff next. An historic day on Capitol Hill, the bipartisan January 6th committee referring former President Trump to the Justice Department on four criminal charges, inciting, assisting or aiding an insurrection, Obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the United States, and conspiracy to make false statements. Joining me now is Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff of California, a member of the Select Committee. Congressman, thanks so much for being with us. So based on the information publicly available, which of your referrals do you think that the Department of Justice is already the furthest along in?
3: Well, uh, this is speculation on my part, but I have to think that the issue, uh, the charges relating to the obstruction of the joint session, the interference with the joint session, the conspiracy to defraud the United States, uh, those would be, I think, probably top of mind for the Justice Department. Uh, But they also need to look at the most serious charge, and that is the incitement of insurrection uh the aid and comforting of people committing an act of rebellion or insurrection uh that is uh, you know certainly not a charge that's brought very often never been brought before against a former president but nonetheless the facts here are, are very much on point uh, but i imagine some of those other statutes uh, they're probably further along at least in their uh, intelligent in their uh, evidence gathering and their assessment which charge do you think has the
1: strongest evidence
3: Well, that's very difficult uh, because I think the evidence is pretty strong, uh, certainly strong enough to warrant our referring it to the Justice Department. Uh, There were other uh, charges that we looked at um, and others that we think the Justice Department may have more evidence than we do. Uh, But on those four, uh, the evidence looks to be pretty strong. uh, And uh, certainly if they haven't begun an investigation of the former president on the basis of those Charges, I think it is a sufficient basis to do so.
1: So let's just pick one of the charges. Let's take the insurrection charge. What do you think the strongest evidence is with that?
3: Well, look, he brought this mob uh, to the Capitol. Uh, He understood that they were armed. um, When he was told they wouldn't go through the metal detectors, uh, his answer was, then, take the metal detectors down. They're not here to hurt me. He understood they were there to potentially hurt someone. Uh, he was more than uh, happy to have them march on the Capitol knowing they were armed. Uh, his only uh, frustration and indignation was that he couldn't go with them. Uh, and when the violence began, he made it worse uh, by attacking his own vice president. Uh, all the people around him understood uh, just how that was pouring gasoline on the fire, and I think he understood that as well. Uh, And then you have the extraordinary dereliction of duty where he sat by and did nothing while this mayhem was taking place. Uh, And then afterwards, telling them how much he loves them, Uh, even now talking about pardoning them. uh, To me, that's pretty powerful evidence, certainly of giving aid and comfort uh, to those engaged in insurrection. So you've
1: noted that the Department of Justice has the ability to get answers from people that you could not. So specifically, which witnesses have they spoken with that you think could prove to be the most important? And what would you ask these people if you had the chance?
3: Well, there are a number of witnesses that, you know, I'm just reading the public reports of people that appear to be going before the grand jury who refuse to to come and testify before us. Now I don't know what they're saying in the grand jury, and it may be that they're invoking a bunch of privileges that don't apply just as some of them did before us. But I think they, they probably view the Congress as much more of a paper tiger uh, in its ability to force subpoenas. The Justice Department is something different. Uh, so my guess is they're getting more uh, answers uh, from some of these witnesses than we could. Uh, in terms of the questions I would wanna ask, I'd wanna ask about conversations uh, involving the president, what they heard. Um, I would wanna ask about other potential co-conspirators and what they were involved in. Uh, many of those conversations are not covered by any privilege, but ten, depending on who was engaging in them and who else was in the room. Um, but uh, we were not able to get answers, and I, I think the Justice Department can.
1: Pat Cipollone, who was White House counsel, did answer questions before a dep- you know, he was deposed by you all. But he drew some lines as to what he would not answer. Presumably with DOJ, those lines don't exist. So what questions from him would you want answers to?
3: Well, you know, he will assert, the White House counsel will assert some of those lines and try to make the case to the Justice Department. Uh, and the Justice Department will have to consider, are they ready to press this in court? What are their chances of winning in court? Uh, how long would it take? That's, you know, part of the calculus that we had to entertain. After all, you know, we're we're almost two years into this uh, and, uh, and we're still litigating some of these issues. Uh, sadly, this is a tried and true tactic of Donald Trump, which is, to delay and delay and delay in the hope that justice delayed will be justice denied. Uh, So, uh, you know, I think it will be a process of a different kind of negotiation with these witnesses. I think the Department of Justice will have a lot more leverage, and they can move much more quickly than the Congress.
1: So, you know, the bar is obviously high, though not insurmountable, to convict attorneys for their advice and their actions. What evidence have you seen about Rudy Giuliani specifically that prompted the criminal referral for him?
3: Well, look uh, Rudy Giuliani um, was well aware uh, that there was no evidence to support these bogus claims of fraud that they were making in courts all over the land Uh, and uh, he was also aware of what the president was intending to do on January 6th in terms of uh, his conversation with Cassidy Cassidy Hutchinson for example Um, he went before these state legislatures making unsupported false claims of fraud you saw Uh, the testimony that he gave in Georgia. uh, And and so he was deeply involved in an effort, I think, to defraud, a conspiracy to defraud, uh, as well as the conspiracy to make false statements, a conspiracy to interfere with the joint session of Congress. Um, uh, So uh, I think there's evidence uh, along those lines as well.
1: Congressman Adam Schiff, we appreciate your time tonight. Thanks so much for being with us.
3: Thank you. So
1: this might be the last January 6th committee hearing, but they managed to deliver some new details. My panel is here and we'll show you some of what we only learned today after this. There were new pieces of evidence released today in the final January 6th committee hearing, including a list of the weapons confiscated ahead of former President Trump's speech on January 6th. Now look at this list. 269 knives or blades, 242 canisters of pepper spray, 30 batons or blunt instruments, 18 tasers, 18 brass knuckles, 17 miscellaneous items, including scissors or needles, six pieces of body armor and three gas masks. Here with me now, John Miller, CNN's Chief Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst, S.E. Cupp and Ellie Honig, back with us. So, John, that's, that's quite a list there. Batons, not, not the average thing that people carry around. This was the group of people that Donald Trump spoke to, riled up, and then, you know, basically said, let's march to the Capitol. The question here is, is that illegal or, as I suspect that he will ultimately argue if it gets to a court of law, just reckless? And the reason this is interesting, particularly today, is Mike Pence did an interview where he said, I don't want to see President Trump charged. What he said was reckless. What's the distinction here?
9: So that's really interesting because it takes us all the way back to Watergate, which is, in the legal sense, reckless is you are disregarding what could be caused by your statements or actions. It's reckless disregard for what could occur, whereas criminal is usually this is the intent to cause exactly what's going to happen and what happened. Uh, That boils down to, um, going back to Watery, what did they know and when did they know it? Who was in on this? So what the committee has done is they have kind of set the table for there were conversations between close aides to the president about what to do and how on January 6th. Now, who can tie that together and what amounts to, this is Ellie's department, a criminal conspiracy versus just pouring gasoline on the fire to see what would happen?
1: Is there an actual legal point there? So so the legal test for when does speech
8: cross the line, right? Because our First Amendment is very broad. It should be, right? You're especially in the area of political speech. But basically what the law says, is it intended to incite and likely to incite? I think likely to incite Mm -hmm. is the stronger argument. Mm -hmm. It did, right? Look, uh, but intended to incite. Was that in his head? And recklessness is not enough, generally speaking, under the criminal law. You have to show some more specific purpose.
1: Um, Can we pull up the Hope Hicks sound like I one thing that we did hear today was Hope Hicks, who had worked in many different capacities for former President Trump, who was interviewed really after, I guess, the final previous hearing that we heard from the January 6th committee. And this is the first time we saw her testimony. And there was this pretty interesting discussion she revealed.
10: I was becoming increasingly concerned that we were damaging We were damaging his legacy. Uh,
11: What did the president say in
9: response to what you just described?
10: He said something along the lines of, um, you know, nobody will care about my legacy if I lose. Um, So that won't matter. Um, The only thing that matters is, is winning. At all
6: costs, win any way you can. And I think through all the investigations, we've learned that that was clearly how Trump was approaching um, this election. I can't get over, and this is crazy, but we don't hear a lot from Hope Hicks. And so it was new, both in the content and in the presentation. I didn't even know what her voice sounded like. <laughs> I know, I know. And she's, been, she, she's kept very quiet. She kept quiet through mm. the administration and post. I can't put my, my head inside the space of someone who thought... This was what was going to damage his legacy. Mm-hmm. Like it hadn't already been damaged by the sexism and the bigotry, the racism, the anti-Semitism, the two impeachments, um, you know, all the bad stuff. They thought he was still intact until the insurrection. I mean, I don't know if she she thinks that way, but that's clearly what she was thinking at the time. This is going to damage your legacy, and I somehow have the ability mm. to stop you or make it better. That's wild to me. She wasn't
1: alone. I mean, there were those cabinet officials who only resigned at that point, and there were other people. Many of were, them. There were for whom that was the final straw. Ellie, in the previous segment, I, I spoke to Congressman Adam Schiff, and I, and I asked what I thought was a really, really good question uh, about- <laughs> So sharp. <laughs> about, about the fact that DOJ, in front of a grand jury, can get answers from people that- Congress could not. And one of the people that I was thinking about was Pat Cipollone, who CNN has reported now has testified before the grand jury. This was the moment before the January 6th committee, and people could see how sort of limited it was. Watch.
9: You,
12: on the staff, did not want people to leave the Capitol. On the staff? In the
9: White House. I, 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 I can't think of anybody, you know on that day who didn't want people to get out of the the the, Capitol, particularly once the violence started. No.
13: I mean...
3: What about the president?
9: Yeah. Well, she said the staff, so I answered. No, I said in the White House. Oh, I'm sorry. I apologize. I thought you said Who who else on the staff?
1: So he didn't answer the what about the president question there. Yeah. In front of the grand jury. Yeah. Will he have to or would he have had to answer that question? So what he's
8: doing in that clip we just saw is hiding behind executive privilege. And, And I don't mean to say that in a derogatory way. It is a real privilege. The difference, though, is according to our reporting by our Evan Perez and our DOJ team, DOJ has had this fight. They've gone to a judge under seal, which is appropriate because we're in the grand jury. You're supposed to be doing things under seal, meaning in secret. And they've argued over executive privilege. And the judge has ruled in favor of DOJ, meaning that question that we just Mm -hmm. saw Pat Cipollone not answer. He should be answering at. The grand jury. So DOJ will get that information. The other thing is, and Adam Schiff was right about this, DOJ has way more powerful tools to enforce these subpoenas. We're used to a year and a half of people sort of casually blowing off the January 6th committee subpoenas and little, if anything, happening to them. That is not going to fly. The answer to that question is a
1: big deal. It is. The answers that Pat Cipollone can provide. They're a big deal. He was, he was willing, willing to row. go right up, to, right up yeah. to what did everyone say except the president? That's what you want to know. And this yeah. gets to, John, and I think you've got a really interesting take on this. There's just a vast difference between the way the January 6th committee went about investigating and questioning than you will get from the FBI or federal prosecutors.
9: I mean, in general, the FBI likes to investigate everything they can and then interview the targets which gives them the advantage of knowing all the answers that they're going to get, which ones are going to be truth, which ones are going to be lies. So you like to interview your targets last. In this case, while it is not the way that the FBI or a prosecutor would have necessarily gone about it, now they have this enormous bank of what people would say if they were asked these questions, and they will have the results of their investigation. So um, in a way, while it's not the way they would have done it, uh, they're walking into this case with a lot more information than they usually start off with, not counting what they already know. Right. John Miller, SC Cup, Ellie Honig, thank you all thank you. very much.
1: So it wasn't the Grinch. It was a real life thief. A woman caught going through Christmas presents under the tree in Robert De Niro's house. Stay with us. The New York Police Department arrested a woman for breaking into Robert De Niro's home early this morning. That is according to a law enforcement source who says the woman did not interact with the actor. But police say she is one of the top five burglars in the precinct. John Miller has been digging into the story. Just walk us through exactly what happened here.
9: So it's 2.45 in the morning. This is when I would usually be on the way home. Um, The 19th precinct... uh, Specialty anti crime unit, the public safety unit is driving around and they see a woman who seems to be checking the doors of commercial places. And they say, Is that Shanice? Because she's supposed to be in jail. She's a known burglar in the precinct. They keep her under surveillance and she goes down some stairs into kind of a townhouse and doesn't come out. When they follow up and look down the stairs, they see there's a forced entry, the window's broken, the door is open. And there, um, amidst all the presents and an iPad and other things, is one of the most prolific burglars in the precinct who has broken in. So they take her into custody. Robert De Niro's upstairs. He's asleep. He doesn't know anything about this till the police wake him up, and he hears all this activity. Um, there's other people at home.
1: So, so let's deal with the De Niro aspect first. Any sign
9: that she knew she was breaking into De Niro's house? No idea in all likelihood because she had been looking at other places looking for an opening, according to the narrative of police watching her up to that point. And, you know, she just found a, a down-the-stairs place that wasn't a easy to see from the street where, you know, she could allegedly break a window and make an entry. So he was safe, by, right. all, by all accounts. Right. And according to my sources, you know, she used a metal pipe. There's video of this from the security system. So, um, you know, De Niro has another movie. Um, <laughs> so the thing is...
1: With this suspect, you say a known burglar. She has been charged, correct, with doing this a lot of times.
9: So she has an extensive criminal record, but she has been charged uh, with burglary, larceny, possession of stolen property, um, 20 felony arrests, um, a dozen uh, misdemeanor arrests. Uh, But if you look at the cadence of it, you know, this is apparently... Uh, if all those charges were were true, uh, what she does for a living. She's a professional burglar.
1: A professional burglar. And it could highlight, again, still more questions with the bail system in New York. Explain.
9: So under the Criminal Justice Reform Act that was passed in 2020 or enacted in 2020, um, it says that judges could not impose bail on a number of cases. Uh, burglary was one of them. Then they adjusted it to say, well, certain burglaries you could. But the point is, even when they impose bail, it has to be in the least restrictive circumstances uh, for pretrial release. And if they impose bail, it has to be a bail that the defendant can afford. So basically, the bail for somebody who can show no means other than being a burglar Uh, is going to be very low. This is why you have this machine that just the wheels turn every day, people get arrested, they come out the other side, and they come out not in custody when she was arrested. She had two outstanding warrants for cases she hadn't shown up at. She had been arrested in, in December 8th for seven burglaries, and then December 13th for two more in Queens. So she had been just arrested for multiple burglaries, let out, and then arrested for multiple burglaries and then caught in a burglary. So if you get the idea that the system is churning people out, not in, that's what's going on.
1: And judges now, with the, the the change to the law that was initially enacted, judges can
9: impose bail for burglary, but by and large haven't been? Is that what's being found? Well, the judges know the system pretty well, um, but they know that the intent of the law is that they're supposed to impose the least restrictive uh Uh, pretrial conditions possible. So if it's bail, if the person uh, doesn't have uh, resources that are documented, it has to be very low bail. And if it can be no bail, it should be supervised release, which is check in with your probation officer every six weeks. If you get caught again, well, that was bad. Now check in every three weeks. Uh, But there's a definite look in 49 states of America. A judge can consider dangerousness, meaning what is your likelihood that while you're on release, you're going to commit the same kind of crime again? You can tell by a person's pattern. New York is the only state where that is not the case. Judges are not allowed to consider dangerousness Mm. and threat to the public, just whether you'll return to court.
1: Let me just ask, again, this is sort of quite literally maybe a first world problem in the area where, where Robert De Niro lives. But if someone could just walk in to your apartment building or complex through a... Know a basement door that's a problem, yes,
9: yes. Uh, but I mean, there's a security system in this case, the alarm was off, but the video was on, but the door was locked, but she broke in. Um, but I think you know, if you look at those people who do this for a living, that's what they're doing, they're out checking every night. 25% 25% of burglars in New York City are arrested again within 60 days of their last burglary charge, which suggests there's a bunch of burglaries in between where they're not caught. All right, bonus question. Favorite De Niro movie? Uh, I would say Goodfellas,
1: a little bit. That's the right answer. Taxi driver, the other option. Are you stealing from me? <laughs> are you looking at me? You're talking to me? John Miller, thank you very much. All right, guilty again. Harvey Weinstein found guilty on some charges in yet another sexual assault trial. We'll tell you the details right after this. New tonight, a California jury reached a verdict in the sexual assault trial of former film mogul Harvey Weinstein. The jury found him guilty of three of seven counts in a Los Angeles trial where prosecutors argued he used his Hollywood influence to lure women into private meetings and then assault them. Guilty verdicts include forcible rape, and all stemmed from the assault of a woman in February of 2013. Now, Weinstein was found not guilty of one count of sexual battery, and three other counts ended in a hung jury. The verdict comes after 41 hours of deliberations over a period of 10 days, He faces up to 24 additional years in prison. Weinstein is already serving a 23-year sentence for his sexual assault conviction in New York. And next, the January 6th committee refers Donald Trump to the Justice Department on four criminal charges. The ball is now in their court. This is far from a slam dunk, though. That's next. All eyes on the Justice Department tonight. This after the January 6th committee formally recommended four criminal charges against former President Trump. This is how Congressman Jamie Raskin made their case.
2: We propose to the committee advancing referrals where the gravity of the specific offense, the severity of its actual harm and the centrality of the offender to the overall design of the unlawful scheme to overthrow the election compel us to speak ours is not a system of justice where foot soldiers go to jail and the masterminds and ringleaders get a free pass
1: so that remains to be seen but referring a former president for criminal prosecution is something that has never happened before and now it is up to the department of justice to decide whether or not to indict, what to do with this? I want to bring in CNN senior political analyst John Avlon, also Gloria Brown Marshall, constitutional law professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, CNN political analyst Ested Herndon, a national political reporter for the New York Times, and former FBI deputy director Andrew McCabe. John, I want to start with you. Last hour, I actually said we thought about booking in a historian to talk about the historical context, but what's the point? Because there is none. This has never happened in history. That's right. There's never been a referral, a criminal referral to the Justice Department for a former president of the United States. So instead of asking for the political context or historical context... What about the historical significance of this?
4: Well, I think the two things are connected, right? I mean, first of all, it's that reminder that we are in uncharted territory, that even the founders didn't imagine that a president of the United States would be someone who would foment an insurrection. Even the Civil War generation did not anticipate that. But here's where historic context, and I'm going to nerd out with you on this one. As, as you know, we have for a long time together since January 6th. I mean, what hangs over this isn't just the unprecedented nature, but the it, the charge of insurrection which itself is in the wake of the Civil War, the fact that it dovetails with the Constitution's 14th Amendment, Section 3, which would bar people who participate in insurrection or give it aid or comfort from holding office, which is also what this criminal statute says. Those are the stakes. And keeping in mind that the Congress that passed the 14th Amendment intended for that law to be prospective, to be looking forward, not just punishing the ex-Confederates, indicates how much history is entwined in this, even though
1: we are beyond history. Yeah, they they wrote it. You know, 100 years later, it's the first time. It's ever been used on a former president. Professor, so they have the summary. They're going to get the full report. We are, I guess, on on Wednesday. And then these transcripts, the transcripts of all these interviews delivered by by truck, I imagine, (laughs) to the Department of Justice. What does DOJ do with it all?
14: Well, let's do two things. One, this is not beyond history. We have to realize we had an insurrection in this country, a coup d'etat, and that was in 1898 in Wilmington, North Carolina, in which hundreds of people were killed because they did not like the fact that black men had one office there. So there was no accountability in that case. So history is not completely repeating itself, but it's treading on some thin ice here. But I do want to say, yes, it's a truckload of evidence, because these referrals are given to the Department of Justice doesn't mean they're restricted to what's been given to them. They can go beyond these referrals and they can look at that evidence and decide there are other charges they may want to bring.
1: Or to be clear, they could also just not look at it at all.
14: They could not look at it at all. And plus, we're looking at just the DOJ and possible criminal charges. We have a supermajority on the U.S. Supreme Court. We know it's not going to stop with whatever the verdict is. If the verdict goes against Donald Trump, he's known to be this litigator of litigators of every issue. So what do we think? about the u.s supreme court are we going to get justice there when three of those people were there as uh nominees for or appointees almost for donald trump so this is ongoing when we look at the legal ramifications so
1: the doj can or cannot does or does not have to look at this referral at all so as a legal matter it's tbd instead as a political matter
5: what did the committee
1: what did the committee accomplish
5: I feel like the committee accomplished something definitely in the midterms in terms of painting Republicans as a kind of extremist figure. It it landed across a kind of uh, several... Democratic efforts that try to paint Republicans as out of step with the median voter. But the look is further ahead. The question is whether is whether Democrats have really made a case uh, about, about going forward. I don't think that's really clear yet. I, I, I think that when we look to specifically to 2023, the question will be whether the GOP primary has excised Donald Trump from the core of the party, and that has not happened yet. And so the core question going forward is about whether the GOP is, is is looking at, at January sixth, and that's what the committee laid out as as kind of uh, outsized of where the party is, and that is not is that that's, that's not where the that's not where the party has become yet. And so I feel like we still have an open question about whether about whether they're going to to to, to excise the party from where it is. Let's bring in Andy McCabe in this discussion, and Andrew. As I said, these transcripts, uh, all of them
1: from the interviews that the committee did with. All of these witnesses, finally at last, and I I suppose we will ask if it should have happened before, but at last now, the Department of Justice will
2: get its hands
1: on them. If you were one of the investigators going through these transcripts, what would you look for? Mm.
2: Well, John, they, they have an enormous amount of work in front of them. So as a general matter, you never, if you're a federal prosecutor, you never want anyone else to get the first cut at your witness because you don't want that witness saying things under oath or on the record that you then have to deal with later. That ship has sailed. It's not one witness. It's hundreds of witnesses, many of whom the department might believe are essential to the cases they try to make. And they now have to reconcile... Uh, their own interviews with those witnesses, with the statements that these witnesses have made to the committee and maybe in other places on the record uh, prior to the Justice Department even sitting down with them. All of that material will be discoverable to the defendants, possibly, quite possibly the former president himself, in any uh, indictments for this activity that that come forward. So the DOJ has to know everything that's in those transcripts. They have to factor that into their own interactions with those witnesses and in doing their interviews and trying to clean up things that might be contradictory or or not clear. So they have a lot of work uh, in front of them. And some of that might create real legal problems for them in uh, any future prosecutions. Let
1: me just ask, should they have already known what's in those transcripts, though? This happened two years ago. So what does it say about where the Department of Justice is if there is anything to learn in those transcripts?
2: There's a very good argument to be made, John, that the DOJ is late to the party here, right? However, to be perfectly fair, they had a big, another big job on their hands. They've got 500 people convicted, over 900 indictments from all the, let's call them lower-level participants in the uh, mayhem on the Capitol on January 6th. So there was a lot going on. But needless to say, they waited a long time before they started training their focus on the upper levels of this conspiracy, on those who planned it on those who hatched it, and, of course, on the president himself who would have benefited from it had it all succeeded. So now they're having to pay for that time that they allowed the committee to get out in front of them, do this investigation, talk to these witnesses, put people on the record, show them to the nation. They've got to really square up uh, that delay at this point.
1: John, what surprised you the most today?
4: Um, there wasn't as much new information as I was expecting, but I think Hope Hicks' testimony did a lot of work for them. What, what I think really struck me was how much it was a retying of the bow, um, and that the most compelling testimony, and really the sheer weight of the argument they're making, comes from Republicans, former Trump loyalists, condemning Donald Trump for what, in essence, is dereliction of duty and a refusal to defend our democracy, or rather an intent to overturn an election. That it's Republicans making the case against that Republican president. That's so powerful. And today we heard from Hope Hooks and Kellyanne
1: Conway. You yeah. know, these, are, these are two people who could not humanly be politically closer <laughs> or, or, or personally closer That's right to, to Donald Trump and are deeply loyal to him, and the committee found ways to use their own words to make the case. So one of the questions will be, uh, to what extent was Donald Trump specifically responsible for what happened on January 6th. Can you prove that he was responsible for what happened? And part of what the committee is suggesting is, you know what? We're going to listen to actual insurrectionists themselves. You can tell by what the insurrectionists said the power that Donald Trump had. So let's listen to a bit of that. We were invited by the president
11: of the United States. He personally asked for us to come to D.C. that day. And I thought, for
9: everything he's done for us, if this is the only thing he's going to ask of me, I'll do it. Um, well, basically, uh, you know, the president, you know,
11: got everybody riled up, told everybody to head on down. So we basically were just follow
1: what he said. So, Professor, to make the case that it was Trump that did this, is he's responsible. What does the Department of Justice, not the committee, because the committee referred it, they've done their job. But what does DOJ need to prove in a court?
14: They need to prove that there is a direct connection between what Donald Trump was saying and the intent for them to go to Congress and stop the proceedings. And what we just heard was someone saying, yes, he got us all riled up. Yes, he told us to go. But did he tell them stop the proceeding?" It's almost like Donald Trump is known for saying things in such a general way that people with whom he's speaking know what he wants, but they are not being told very specifically, go do A, B, and C. So that's my only concern. I would have preferred if every charge included conspiracy. Because then he doesn't have to prove the intent to do it that he conspired to do it. He didn't have to be successful, but that's what he wanted. And so because conspiracy is not in the referral, that's fine because that's not going to limit what the DOJ was going to do. But I think the witnesses are telling us that, yes, they believe that's what he was saying. I just wanted more. I wanted Mm -hmm. to hear that there was some evidence that he actually said we're going to stop these proceedings and that evidence is connected to the mob. I said, put this,
1: the referrals in this larger soup, this larger Trump soup that's existed really in the last four weeks since the midterm elections where, you know, people are blaming Donald Trump for the midterms not going as well as they should for Republicans, Trump having dinner with white nationalists and anti-Semites, Trump talking about terminating the Constitution. So add these referrals into the soup of Donald Trump. How much more are Republicans willing to tolerate
5: I think this is the difference between a political standard and a legal standard, right? There is not the evidence that the committee has brought forth. And and we know that this is the kind of work of the committee to not have uh, necessarily the legal standard for Donald Trump to be proven for things like conspiracy. But there is no question that the public blamed him for kind of larger extremism and for a larger kind of drawing of the Republican Party to a place that was not where median voters were. That was punished in the Republican Party. Party in the midterms, very clearly across the state secretary of state races, across governor's races, across races in which Donald Trump uh, uh, endorsed the kind of key Republican nominees. That was roundly rejected in the midterms. And so, in the political angle, we have a very clear rejection of the ways Donald Trump has involved himself in the most uh, uh, extreme versions of kind of Republican insurrection. But at the same time, when we look forward, to the Republican primary, there's not a clear answer that Republicans, a kind of plurality of Republicans, blame him for that. And so that's going to be the key difference. We do have evidence that the general election, that the swing voter, that the folks who voted in the midterms have that kind of rejection of the former president. But the real question will be whether Republicans are going to be there as he runs for the next campaign in 2024.
1: All right, friends, thank you all very much. So we're just days away from a new Republican majority in the House of Representatives. And some of them were named today in the hearing. What role did they play? So stay with us. So the January 6th committee made waves with criminal referrals against former President Donald Trump. Something like that has never happened before. But they also did something else pretty interesting. They referred four Republican members of Congress to the House Ethics Committee. Congressman Kevin McCarthy, who stands to be Speaker, Jim Jordan, Andy Bigg, and Scott Perry, they all refused to cooperate with subpoenas from the House Committee. But with an evenly split ethics committee, there is little expectation the four would face any consequences. With me now, CNN political commentators Scott Jennings and Ashley Allison. I may have overstated the case there, little chance that the Ethics Committee will do anything, Ashley. With an evenly split at this committee, there's essentially zero chance, right, that they'll do anything, is there?
12: Well, I'm not sure what the Ethics Committee will do. I mean, the the committee did not make criminal referrals for them, but I think introducing their name the Justice Department could still call them in and question them about the role they played on January 6. And so while I think the, the January 6th committee did a really important thing in highlighting members of the Republican Party that were still essential players and did potentially unethical things that day and that they should, someone should take note. And if nothing is happening on the committee, at least it is in the record that they stated their claim that these folks were a part of this attempt to overthrow our government.
1: They got it in the record, Scott. Was it anything more than that?
11: Uh,
12: Well, I think um,
11: probably not for the congressional side, but as Ashley said, I mean, I guess they could be called as witnesses as part of a a DOJ investigation. That's where the action is anyway here. I mean, these referrals today are, you know, interesting, but the real action is at the Department of Justice. And if they want to talk to somebody, then uh, I reckon they're going to do that, and so uh, these folks uh, probably aren't off the hook for that. If the DOJ investigators feel they're material to making the case,
1: uh, Scott. While I have you, since you 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 know you've worked for Mitch McConnell, you know him really well. He said something interesting today when he was asked about this. I don't have it right in front of me, but his his exact response when asked about the committee hearings and the referrals was basically the entire world knows who was responsible. For January 6th. So how did you read that? Why did he say it that way?
11: I mean, it was pretty clear. Uh, and, and look, he's right. I mean, you don't have to go looking too hard to figure out what happened on January the 6th. If you watched it that day, if you followed any of this, if you see you know, the evidence that has been brought forward, I mean, one person was responsible for it. And by the way, McConnell made pretty clear how he felt about Donald Trump and January the 6th during his floor speech after Uh, It all happened. And so I think he's been pretty clear uh, about his feelings on this. He doesn't typically use the former president's name in public. In fact, I can't think of a time when he has. Uh, But I know he was outraged about the treatment of the members of Congress, about the treatment of the Capitol and the treatment of the Constitution that day. I know he was outraged by the behavior uh, of the former president. And I know. Uh, he's uh, has been has been angry about it uh, since that it happened, and he's followed these proceedings very closely.
1: Actually, the Democratic majority in the House of Representatives lasts. I'm looking at my calendar here. Last, basically, like 16 more days, 15 more days. It's almost over. So, mm-hmm. what do you, as a Democrat, fear that Republicans, when they take control of the various committees, will do now in regard specifically? To the January 6th investigation?
12: Well, my biggest fear is that they do nothing and that they pretend like it doesn't didn't happen and that they if you have four people who were just referred to the ethics committee and now they're in the majority, my fear is that they're going to govern in an unethical way. Now, prove me wrong. I'm happy to be wrong. But my greatest fear is that rather than Republicans did not have this red wave, as everyone predicted. People were very clear that they didn't want this divisive, anti-Democratic governing style. And my fear is that instead of doing a people's agenda and compromising and working with Democrats to improve the quality of life for Americans, they will play political games and try and do tit-for-tat, and do oversight hearings on things that the American people really don't care about. There are some things that should be investigated, but Hunter Biden's laptop is not one of them. And I fear that they will just continue to do that to throw red uh, red meat to their base.
1: So, Scott, uh, it was last week? I can't remember. Time has run out on me here. But after Georgia, after the runoff in Georgia, you declared that Georgia may be remembered basically as the moment that defeated Donald Trump, that broke Donald Trump once and for all. So I guess what I'm wondering is the criminal referrals today, is he more broken because of what happened today?
11: I think he gets more broken every day since the midterm, when it became clear that anybody affiliated with him got punished by the voters. He had a terrible month after that. Then we lost the Georgia runoff when I tweeted that. Uh, because it was obvious that Georgia, you know, still (laughs) rejecting Donald Trump. You also look at the investigation going on in Georgia. I mean, they're not done with him down there in Atlanta. I mean, that's the one place where you actually have Donald Trump's voice on tape, you know, asking the secretary of state to find 11,000 votes. Um, And then you throw what happened today on. You throw the fact that he called for the Constitution to be suspended. You throw the dinner with the white nationalists. I mean, it's been a horrific set of weeks Uh, for Donald Trump. And it got worse today. And it will get even worse, I suspect, when the Department of Justice uh, decides to indict him, if that's what they decide to do. It certainly feels like that's the direction they're Mm -hmm. headed. So, you know, I ask everybody this. When's the last good day Donald Trump had in American politics? I mean, can anyone remember the last good day? It might have been the day he got over Mm -hmm. COVID. Maybe it was the third debate against Biden, which he won. But every day since that moment his political life has gotten worse and worse and worse. It got terrible uh, today, and it's, and it uh, doesn't look like there's much uh, sun, sunlight on the horizon for him.
1: All right, friends, stick around. Much more to discuss with you, including what happens when a congressman seemingly fakes his resume? We're about to find out. Wait until you hear what one congressman-elect claims he's done versus what CNN actually verified. Major questions tonight about a newly elected Republican congressman and reporting that suggests he inflated or perhaps really just made up parts of his resume. George Santos helped the Republicans gain control of the House by flipping a Democratic seat on Long Island. His bio on the National Republican Congressional Committee website says he attended Baruch College and NYU where he got degrees in finance and economics. Now CNN reached out to both schools and neither has a record of anyone with his name or birthday ever attending. It also says Santos has worked for companies such as Citigroup and Goldman Sachs, but both companies told CNN they have no record of his employment. And there's more. An archived version of his campaign website from April says, George founded and ran a nonprofit called Friends of Pets United from 2013 to 2018, which was able to effectively rescue 2,400 dogs and 280 cats, but... That organization doesn't seem to exist in the IRS searchable database or in registered charities in New York State and Florida. Now, the New York Times was first to report these inconsistencies in just a remarkable story. CNN has reached out to Santos for comment, but his attorney tells CNN in a statement that the Times was attempting to smear the congressman-elect with defamatory allegations it is worth noting, in the response from the attorney, there's no direct refutation of any of the actual allegations insofar as I read it. So back with us, uh, John Avalon, Scott Jennings, and Ashley Allison. Um, John, I just have to quote, I guess, Keith Jackson here. Whoa, Nellie. I mean, my goodness.
4: <laughs> wow, we want full whoa, Nellie. No, th- this isn't um, one or two items on, on the campaign resume that are out of whack. This seems to be everything. I mean, the Times even went to where he's supposedly registered to vote. And no one at the house seemed to know who he was. Um, I will say this had been picked up by some local reporters on a much lower level, but the race I don't think was taken seriously, and these allegations never really surfaced. I mean, there are questions about the inflation of his income and things like that in a short period of time. But this seems to be a wholesale Potemkin candidate who's now a congressman-elect that it's all made up out of whole cloth. Now, it's incumbent upon the congressman to come forward, come forward to elect and say where the truth is, but it appears to be the truth is
1: nowhere. Uh, it's pretty jaw-dropping. And actually, I have to say, the reaction from a lot of political operatives out there in the world was, how was this missed in the campaign?
12: How was it missed from the Republican Party and also the opponent? Where was the oppo research to say, none of this actually holds up, especially in such an election that we knew was potentially going to be so close. Look, I don't know this guy, and it seems like someone I don't want to ever know because he doesn't tell the truth. But if all of this actually does pan out and any everything he says that he potentially had on his resume was false— I think he should step down. I don't think um, he should be serving the people of that district or in our Congress. Now, I know folks will say, oh, it's because she's a Democrat and he's a Republican. I'm going to tell you if there's a Democrat out there lying like that, I don't want you representing my party either. This this is just totally unacceptable and should have been caught earlier. Um, and the, the voters, Republican and Democrat, deserve better than this.
1: Scott Jennings, when can we expect Kevin McCarthy uh, and the leaders in the House Republican Party to come forward? with the statement declaring what they're going to do with this freshly elected Republican congressman?
11: Yeah, they're probably looking into it right now and, and trying to figure out what to do. I'm surprised to hear Ashley say that people shouldn't fabricate things about their lives. I mean, uh, I mean, goodness gracious. I mean, the president of the United States fabricates out of whole cloth dozens of episodes that literally never <laughs> happened in his life. Now, that doesn't make it okay. And it certainly doesn't make it okay for this congressman uh, to uh, have clearly you know, invented an entire you know, bio for himself. So I don't know what they can do. I'm not sure if this is an ethics committee matter that they should look into or not. Uh, it strikes me that there could be some issues there that they may want to refer to the ethics committee, but obviously this is not the kind of person you would want uh, representing your party, but you know, Kevin McCarthy doesn't exactly have that big of a margin to deal with over there. So, I, so I don't, uh, I don't know how that may play into their, uh, into their decision. Well, just, just to be clear, the, yeah.
1: scale, the scale of what's been reported here, it's it just yeah. this is a different animal completely um, than, than uh, other types of things we've seen before. And, John, in terms yeah. of, of possible repercussions here, the reason I asked about Kevin McCarthy is, is actually sort of the only recourse here is in Congress at this point and with, therefore, the majority, Right. Yeah, and, and, and here's where the margins
4: do come in. But I mean, th- this could be, you know, falsifying your financial disclosure forms is, is a violation of the Ethics and Government Act. It would, could come to the committee if he chooses to pursue it. But here's where those narrow margins, every He's receipt paying. matters. So is he going to risk it? But this is somebody who seems to have, you know, been elected on, upon fundamentally false pretenses. Um, and, and whether it's
1: illegal, TBD, unethical, that seems pretty clear. Yeah, I mean, I, I just don't, I, I can't even game out, Ashley, like how, a guy goes to Congress, and, and every time he faces—he may not ever face reporters, I guess, but how can he answer questions if he didn't go to Baruch College, but he said he did? How do you handle that?
12: Well, if he, if all of this is false, he'll probably just make up false answers when he's asked questions. Um, but this is, I think, a bigger conversation about what is actually happening in our politics mm. and the type of folks that we want actually running— not just so we have majorities, but we so we have credible, real Americans who have a diversity of experience. Um, There are people who graduated from Baruch College that would be more than qualified to serve as uh, as a congressperson, or people who never even graduated from Congress. But I think this is a bigger conversation about the lies that are tolerated in politics right now and how it needs to come to an end. You
1: know, it's, it's a fair point. And, and, and I almost feel bad. I, part of the reason I keep smiling and shaking my head is because I just can't believe the level that, that's been reported here. And as someone who's covered politics for a long time, I've never seen anything quite like this. And, and Scott, it's just I mean, it would be, it's a hard two years. It's, a, it's an almost impossible two years to imagine for this guy at this point.
11: Yeah, we'll see what I I suspect there's more to come here. I mean, this was a big report from the New York Times. And and I think if you've dug a hole this deep, there's there's more to learn. And certainly Mm -hmm. the Republicans do have a responsibility to learn more about who is in their conference and what that what the impact of having someone like that in the conference is. And they do have a responsibility to make referrals uh, to the ethics committee if they feel like. Uh, that any as John said that this financial disclosure issue could be a real could be a real thing that has to be looked into, so I think if you 're the majority party and one of your own has uh, clearly created some issues for himself it's your responsibility to to police your own
14: your own conference
11: all right,
1: thank you all so much. Great to see you tonight. So the plane carrying Argentina's victorious World Cup soccer team should be landing in Buenos Aires soon. We are tracking it as it makes its way, and it is getting close. In this plane, I mean, they can expect thousands of Argentinians to greet them with a hero's welcome. I mean, tens of thousands to greet them. The team, of course, pulled out a win uh, after overtime. They won in a shootout over France in the World Cup. This was a nail-biter. This was the best World Cup final In the history of history, Um, it's a game the team and France's team, by the way, should both be proud of. One of the questions after it was all over is: Would Lionel Messi? Would it be his last game? We now know the answer to that question, and it is no. He posted a photo of himself showing him on the plane holding the World Cup trophy. I'm sure he's like not let it out of his grasp once. He says he wants to be keep on playing as a World Cup champion. Who can blame him? He's basically faced questions for years and years and years and years and years about, you know, why he's never won a World Cup. And now he can say, I did. I am a World Cup champion, and I am going to keep playing. The team has been celebrating the win. They went onto the streets of Qatar, showing off their trophy for the world to see the world's most famous trophy. Back home, Argentina's Argentinians, they partied into the wee hours of the morning. I do not think they have stopped partying since the end of that shootout we will bring you the arrival live tonight on cnn when it happens so stay tuned for that but next should elon musk step down from twitter it's a question that he asked on twitter he asked twitter users to decide in a poll is he looking for an out that's next Elon Musk is facing mounting criticism over his chaotic leadership at Twitter. But he apparently shrugged it all off yesterday, spending the day watching the World Cup final in Qatar. You can see him there standing next to Jared Kushner, former President Trump's son-in-law and former top White House. Now, I hope I don't get in trouble for saying where Elon Musk was yesterday. He was at the World Cup. Uh, I will see if my Twitter account gets suspended now. Back at Twitter. Musk put out a poll asking if he should step down as head of the company. The majority of those who responded said yes, he should. Scott Jennings and Ashley Allison back with me. And now I'm joined also by CNN media analyst Sarah Fisher. And just first on the news of this, he did a poll. Elon Musk has claimed in the past he would abide by the results of the poll. The poll said he should step down. So what's he going to do about it?
10: Yeah, well, I think he's waiting to figure out who's going to be his successor. Rumors have been flying all day. Who's going to take over for this company after Elon Musk? And John, it's a good question because there aren't many people right now that are close to Elon Musk. When he first took over for this company back in, at the end of October, there's a whole group of people who came in, some ex-Twitter folks, some formers from Silicon Valley that he had worked with at SpaceX, et cetera. Now sources are telling us that some of those folks have been pushed out. There's a new slate of people that are in there. So it's unclear who's going to succeed him. But I don't think you're going to get word from him about him stepping down officially until he knows who that person is. But
1: is he stepping down because of the poll? Or did he basically guess or know already what the poll was going to say? And he just did this for publicity. And he was going to step out or he wants to step down anyway.
10: Oh, he was definitely going to step down. He's under enormous pressure from Tesla investors to pivot his focus back to that company whose stock has just tanked over the past few months in response to Elon Musk becoming the head and owner of Twitter. He's told people about a month ago, actually in court, that that was what his long term plan was. So I think the poll is just a kitschy way for him to start this transition and start the search. It was something he was going to do anyway. But until he announces who the person is, we're all stuck in this limbo game, John, waiting to figure out what he's going to say and do while the poll answer says clearly that users want him out.
1: So, so both, let the record show, Scott and Ashley kind of gave me the Elon Musk smile right there. You, you know, <laughs> or, or it was like a political insider smile into why he did the poll. Why, why such mirth from you, Ashley, on this?
12: Oh, Elon. I mean, I I don't actually think he ever really wanted the company. And then because of his antics, he then, you know, has now inherited it. And he doesn't know what he's doing with it. I probably will now be suspended too as well. But uh, he, you know, we know that racial uh, targeting has increased on Twitter. He let Trump back on Twitter. He's kind of spiraling in real life on a business Deal, which is actually investors, advertisers have pulled out on Twitter. Elon Musk doesn't want it, and so he put this poll out as though he wants democracy to thrive, and that's not really what his, you know, mo is what we know him for, and so it's a way to just back out. I also just think that um, Twitter is now a place. Twitter was always bad, but Twitter has gotten so much worse under his leadership. And, you know, the funny thing when you think about tech policy and people, corporate uh, tech platforms being held accountable, the the most excited person right now because of Elon Musk's existence is Mark Zuckerberg. Because a lot of people have turned their eyes off of what Facebook and Instagram is doing and facing on. But they're both problematic platforms. But Elon, sorry, can't. So send me, send me, Scott you know like find me on TikTok I guess or Instagram <laughs> at this point
11: Yeah uh I think if I were Elon Musk I would go back probably to being the guy known for building amazing cars and cool rockets that you can watch take off and land on video I mean I mean I mean he was known for something amazing now he's dealing with you know constant drama every single day I suspect the successor issue is going to be about who can run a business this size and and who would in uh, advertisers have confidence in I mean that's the main issue here uh, they've got to they've got to attract advertising and uh, keep the revenue flowing so I hope it works out I think uh, I do think it's better when you have a platform like this that uh, democratizes information it does have enormous power for the good when you can uh, get yep. information on things it also has enormous uh, capability of uh, <laughs> suppressing information too as we've learned so uh, whoever the next person is has a big challenge, but I think they need to do it in a
1: le- less dramatic way. It's got enormous power. I think we can all agree on that, and we can all agree on it, especially today. I mean, there is a connection to the January 6th hearings. And what happened that day? I, what is t- Today is literally the two-year anniversary from when Donald Trump wrote, big protest in D.C. on January 6th. Be there. will be wild. That was two years ago today. You know, also... Um, you know, from, from January 6th, you know, he wrote, see you in Washington, DC. Don't miss it. Information to follow January 6th. See you in DC. The big protest rally in DC will take place at 11am. I mean, we see Sarah, just the immense role this has played in the political discourse. Will it continue?
10: It's absolutely going to continue. I don't think Twitter is going to go away. But John, you highlighted something so important, which is that when it comes to these big algorithmically driven platforms, the biggest voices are the ones that can have the biggest impact. You know, Donald Trump mm-hmm. at that time had over 80 million followers. Elon Musk right now has over 120 million followers. That's why when they tweet something that's salacious or damaging, it can do so much damage because there's such a big reach. But I think in the future, the I'm worried about with Twitter is if we can't get these content moderation policies right ahead of the 2024 election, ahead of other elections around the globe, then we're in for a serious misinformation crisis. I don't know if Donald Trump is actually going to come back to the platform. Elon Musk has said that he would bring him back, you know, following that Twitter poll that he did a few weeks ago. But if he does come back to Twitter and there's really loose content moderation, it wouldn't shock me if we had some of the same problems leading up to 2024 that we had after 2020.
1: Guys, thank you all. So much for being with me tonight. Now go tweet the segment so everyone has a chance to see it.
10: (laughs) If we can.
1: (laughs) If you can. Next, we're going to remember a beloved co-worker gone much too soon. This weekend, we lost a beloved member of the CNN family. Senior investigative correspondent Drew Griffin passed away after a battle with cancer. Drew was a journalist with a capital J and a mensch with a capital M. He had a tireless pursuit of the truth, a fearlessness in telling it, and he made change. Our colleague Anderson Cooper takes a look at Drew's remarkable career.
5: It was so hot. During
13: his nearly two decades at CNN, Drew Griffin was known for his tenacious reporting.
5: Are you worried you'll be indicted before the election, sir?
13: His interviews were unwavering.
2: I don't think you really understand how votes... Are cast, collected, and tabulated in this country. Okay.
13: And he gave a voice to those who didn't have one.
12: Well, we don't expect it to be easy. We don't expect the truth to be easy.
13: Drew was a gifted storyteller, dedicated to seeking the truth and holding the powerful accountable.
4: Why do you continue to push the lie that the 2020 election was stolen? It's not a lie. It's a lie. Facts. You have no proofs. We've looked at we all know. the facts. You haven't. T- I tell you You what, don't I,
13: have hey, the facts. And Drew's stories had real-world impact.
4: Well, Uber doesn't release the number of drivers who are accused of sexual assault, so CNN decided to count up ourselves.
13: After CNN questioned Uber about a string of sexual assaults by drivers, the company made major safety changes to its app and revised its policies.
9: Excellent reporting, Uh, thanks to you and your team.
13: Drew exposed serious issues at VA hospitals across the country, revealing a broken system, veterans dying while waiting for care.
12: This particular veteran was screaming, Please do whatever you can. Don't let the VA do this to another patient or another veteran. We do not deserve this type of treatment.
13: That led to the resignation of the VA secretary and an overhaul of the VA's scheduling system.
5: Gas here in Hatay.
13: He covered business and terrorism, the environment and politics.
5: Mr. Birch, Mr. Birch.
13: And there were many people over the years who didn't want to answer his questions.
5: Please talk to us, director. Director Hellman. Did the background checks of those companies not reveal the fact that you were accused of torture and murder? Do you know Alex Ferdman, a convicted felon who apparently runs one of these clinics and has been billing the state of California for several years, despite the fact that there have been complaints?
13: Drew won most of journalism's big awards, but that's not what motivated him. He cared about people and how they were impacted.
5: Get out, dude!
13: While he was covering the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey... He ended up rescuing a man from floodwaters.
4: Don't backwards.
0: All right, sir. You all right? All right. Hold on.
13: Hold on. His job as a correspondent took him all across the country.
4: It wasn't that long ago. These wild Pawnee grasslands were just that wild. Now, almost everywhere you look is a gas rig.
13: And to different parts of the world. But his favorite place was home. He was deeply devoted to his family, his wife, Margaret. And his three children, Ella, Louie, and Miles, as well as two grandchildren. Drew Griffin will be missed by all of us.
1: Drew was such a prince. It was on a show that I was doing that he was supposed to appear when he was saving someone during Hurricane Harvey. They told me, Drew may not make his live shot. I asked why, and they say, because he's pulling someone out of the river. And I'm like, of course he is, because that and was Drew you Griffin. Are. What are they- We just literally rescued this guy out. You can see his
5: car, John. I don't know. Brian, are you working on that?
1: And that was Drew Griffin again. What a wonderful person. We're all better for knowing him. May his memory be a blessing. Thanks for watching. Our covers continues.